The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Wonderful to be with you here this evening on a very, uh, I think, important subject. One that, whether you realize it or not, is uh, not just out there culturally, but primarily in your schools. I want to start by asking a question of everyone here. Uh, What do these falling figures have in common? Uh, The heroes of Charles Dickens' novels, Anne of Green Gables, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, James Bond, Harry Potter, what uh, what do they all have in common? No parents, they're all orphans. Correct. You will find, uh, I uh, came upon this discovery uh, quite a while ago, actually. Uh, but what I discovered is that not only are, is it common for orphans to be there in cultural texts, it's almost ubiquitous. It's very, very difficult to find uh, a movie, a cultural text that does not feature in orphans, and it's been the case for two centuries now. Now, what do orphans have in common uh, other than the fact that they don't have any parents? They're dependent. Who are they dependent upon? The state, and specifically, they're, they're, titled, they're called wards of the state. Uh, I, Joe, this will obviously prick your ears and bring to mind what Joe just talked about in terms of the state acquiring for itself powers that were once attributed to the family, namely that of the educational mandate. I would submit to you as well that what Joe talked about, the 1960 sexual revolution, furthers the very same end. It produces orphans. If children, uh, if sex can happen outside of wedlock in any context, the rate of those who will be born without, not, not just in single parent homes, which is catastrophic, but with no parents whatsoever, is, is huge. Uh, and I, for me, this is not just an incidental fact of the sexual revolution. I think it's actually a, an intention. Uh, there's, there's a reason why there's been uh, no social or moral outcry against this, because again, that would, that would be a Christian response to this, but it wouldn't be in keeping with the idea, in fact, the heroism, the ideal of having orphans in our culture. Now, orphans, uh, if they are going to find what is good and right, and you can think of any of the figures that I've mentioned, but let's take a superhero, they almost immediately uh, are thrown not only upon their own resources, they're called not to look to the past, Uh, not to look to their parents because they don't have anyone, but to look within themselves for the good. And from that good that is within them, they will derive strength and resources to equip themselves for the future. And it will be the state's mandate to bring about that possibility. Now, progressivist education from its inception has aimed at precisely this thing. For children to, you've heard of child-centered education, that it comes from precisely the same ideology that you, you pull out from what is within you the good, the knowledge that the future needs if we're going to break with the past and going to formulate new forms of knowledge. Now, there's a, a recent author named uh, Mary Eberstadt uh, who's written on secularism. Many people have written on the phenomena of secular, secularism, the growth in uh, unbelief. Um, and she, her thesis is that there's a double helix that, that actually prevents change 
and has ma maintained traditional values. It's not just adherence to doctrine, it's the traditional family. And so her thesis is that in order for the uh, human identity be, to be truly broken free from the past, from the Christian faith, it, it not only had to have false doctrine taught, it also had to uh, replace the family. And the state did precisely that. It wasn't that long, and me Joe mentioned Egerton Ryerson as the founder of public education in Canada. He actually quoted uh, Horace Mann, who was a Unitarian more than anyone else. But I digress. We'll get to that later, possibly. Um, not only did he... Uh, uh, so initially, he, he, he brought about the state-sponsored education, but it was, it was not long down the road before the state took upon itself powers to redefine what education was. And, and his definition of this, it's actually Horace Mann's redefinition, and this is a quote here, to be well-educated, or to be educated is to be well-adjusted. The aim of education is to be a well-adjusted child. Does anyone object to that? No, who, 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 would, who could possibly object to being a well-adjusted child? But the definition of what a well-adjusted child will mean will no longer be with ref reference to the Christian faith, no longer with reference to the family, no longer with reference to an ultimate reality, but rather what society thinks. Now, once you have progressivism, which is there in public education from its inception, with its, uh, its model of education as being well-adjusted, you've moved away education from being uh, conveying knowledge, teaching children how to act, to teaching them to be well-adjusted, well-behaved. And so now you can't actually fail out of a school. If you go to the school, you will pass. The only way you can fail is if you refuse to go to the school. Then you can fail. But if you actually sit in the classroom, it's my understanding, if it's, if it's not totally the case, it's increasingly becoming the case, that if you actually just sit in the class, you will still be passed onwards. Because the aim is no longer uh, not at, uh, acquiring knowledge, it's being well-adjusted. And that ties in with what Joe started off with here. Uh, what we have in our time is a... Uh, cultural change, which is specifically a redefinition of human nature in accordance with this ideal of the orphan, the orphan who's searching within himself for his identity. Who am I? Like the little bird in the, you know, those novels, who am I? The little bird looking around for his mother. Yeah, I've got a three-year-old. <laughs> Dr. Seuss. But uh, marriage is being redefined. Uh, sexuality is being redefined. Uh, in both abortion and euthanasia, human life is being redefined. If you redefine the beginning of life, if you redefine the end of life, you re redefine the whole of life. Uh, if you uh, redefine justice according to group rights uh, rather than individual rights, you've redefined justice. The common law tradition is rooted in the idea that the individual has full value and we're all equal before the law, whether we're princes or paupers were equal under the law as individuals. But if we redefine justice to be uh, group rights, then we can start talk about other things. And that is what we talk about. Uh, gender's being redefined, Joe talked about that. Uh, and above all, uh, we can't even, uh, religious freedom is also being redefined. It used to be the freedom to practice your religion. 
Nowadays, it's the freedom to be free from religion. Not free to, but free from. And so groups that op- uh, oppose the Christian faith in all the public square, never mind in the public school, now say that they have a right to be free from any religious expression. Now, as Joe just said, this itself is a religious position. But I'll, I'll just leave that uh, observation aside for a moment because I want to move on to something more important, which is that this new form of freedom is not freedom at all. Uh, it's what our forebears would have called licentiousness. Uh, the public sanctioning of immoral behavior. Licentiousness isn't just doing lewd act in public. It's allowing them, permitting them, and condoning them in public. That's what licentiousness is. And uh, Peter Jones, in his book, The God of Sex, talks about it uh, referring to Romans 1 as a three-stage process, beginning with a truth exchange, the truth of God for a lie, Uh, Then a worship exchange, worshiping the uh, creature rather than the creator. And then talks about a sexual exchange as being the third stage in a process. Just read Romans 1, 21 uh, to 27. And you will see uh, Paul's analysis of how all human culture breaks from the worship of the one true God. And we will see in our age that the sexual revolution is in fact a... Uh, not just a, a, a novum, a new thing in history, it's what has always happened. You either be faithful to your spouse, and that marriage will uh, define your culture. There'll be fruit of that. You know, after all, the marriage is the, the image of Christ to his church. That will define human society as well. Or you'll regard sex as something that is untethered to anything, in which case you'll be expressing an idea that uh, sex, sex is chaotic, and the universe is, as Joe mentioned. Now, what, what surprises many people, although it probably doesn't surprise them anymore, is that this has sta- started and is chiefly practiced in the universities. In the universities. Um, it doesn't surprise me because, again, I've followed this, tracked this, with respect to... Uh, this idea of the orphan in cultural texts for 200 years and in progressive education for 200 years, this idea of changing these things. But universities have shifted away from their foundations, which always had Christian um, mottos. Some of them still do. They tend to uh, take Christ out of it. But as Joe said, you know, Dominus Illuminatio Mia, the Lord illuminate me. Well, that's that could be... and and. Just as long as we take Christ out, we can leave that there. Well, all of the universities in this country, at least the historic ones, began as Christian foundations. Uh, The U of T and Western were Anglican. Uh, McMaster was Baptist. Uh, Waterloo was Lutheran. Queens and McGill were Presbyterian. Um, We've seen over the past, I don't know how many years, but throughout the 20th century, these institutions broke from their their religious moorings and and now uh, practice a new way of doing knowledge and in the last 20 years the public school system has done precisely the, the same you can't do what I did when I was in public school which is hear the Lord's Prayer every day and say it and hear scripture read over the PA every day uh, to hear that you would hear there would be a human rights charge made at that and for I think for most Christians they thought that Uh, if they gave ground on this in the name of being sensitive to other cultural expressions, that there would be a stop to it. 
we're no longer imposing our values on society. Let's accept the idea that there's a neutral space. Let's, we'll accept that. And we'll still send our children to these, and they'll act as, as missionaries in that context. You know, they'll be salt and light in the public schools. But what we've found, I think, and I don't think this is being controversial, um, or if it's controversial, it, it can't be denied, is that there has been no peace for Christians. In fact, the gloves have come off. And now, uh, moving, uh, rather than this neutral form of tolerance, which we've grown up hearing about is a product of Canadian identity, we see that the real end game is to neuter all moral implications of the Christian faith uh, in order to impose a new morality, a new sexual morality in particular. Because to be a human being is to have a sexual identity. In the beginning, God created the male and female. Right in the Genesis text, to be male or female is to be a human being. If you're not male or female, you're not a human being. I'll just leave that aside at the moment, just assert it. And this appeal for our freedom from religion is increasingly manifesting itself in universities. And it's being asserted with, gra- with a great deal of uh, vigor. Um, uh, last year, I read that Yale University was holding a workshop to provide what they called sensitivity training towards bestiality. Uh, Yale's motto remains, by the way, Lux et Veritas, light and truth. Uh, This fall, Brown University, another Ivy League school, these are not poor schools, uh, they offered sex change surgery, sexual gender reassignment surgery, they call it, at $50,000 a pop for free, courtesy of the Brown Student Health Plan. And they joined Harvard, Cornell, Stanford, and the University of Pennsylvania in providing that. So you could have your gender redefined uh, and covered by the Brown Student Health Insurance Plan. What this has to do with education is clearly nothing. What it has to do with is being well-adjusted to the cultural ideal. What is the cultural ideal? That your sexual identity and your gender identity have nothing to do with one another. That what you see with your eyes is not the reality there. It's a form of it's clearly a religious expression, but it's an irrational one. This is the thing that I, uh, like Joe, when I talk in public, I'm always pointing out, is that there's the, the faith position of the, the gender identity people is, is more obvious and more irrational than anything any Christian has ever said. There's nothing so irrational as for me to say that I'm a, I'm a woman. Sorry. And you have to agree with this and allow me to act in accordance with that. Now, I'm going to go through a few slides here, which will educate will uh, illustrate, rather, what is currently going on around Ontario. Now, this is from the TDSB poster that is there. You can read it for yourself. Love has no gender. It also has no number. You can see not just two, but three uh, on this. That's part of their safe and positive space uh, curriculum. You know, we're here, we're queer, we're in your school, different colors going in different directions. No sense of a a proper current or curriculum for this. There are no rules for being a boy or a girl. Uh, What we have here, uh, this little boy on the pumpkin with the orange hair in in drag. Uh, All of them, a little boy here on the right wearing a tutu. Um, 
when we respect each other for who we are, there isn't anything we can't do. Name-calling hurts, shaming hurts, stereotypes hurts. Well, the question is, Beg, what, when it says uh, we respect each other for who we are, what precisely do they mean? I agree with the statement. We need to respect each other for who we are. But what? who are we? The Christian will say that we bear the image of God. We are in his image, male and female. Both are necessary for the f- full human expression. There's an equality there between the genders, which is why, precisely why women under the Christian faith have uh, enjoyed more rights than any other religious expression, precisely because of the Imago Dei. Under this, who we are is not whether we're ma- male or female, it's whatever we want to self-identify with, whatever, whatever gender expression it is. And they proliferate. They keep on growing. The term gender shall include actual or perceived sex and shall also include a person's gender identity, self-image, appearance, behavior, or expression, whether or not that gender identity, self-image, appearance, behavior, or expression is different from that traditionally associated with the legal sex assigned to that person at birth. This person was clearly a sociologist. (coughs) I think it's impossible not to um, understand that what we're experiencing in our day is God's judgment on our country, uh, which is a direct consequence Not of the way the world goes, because the way of the world has always been the way of the world, but of the generational unfaithfulness of the church, particularly in the area of education. In the name of tolerance, uh, Christians have allowed themselves to be browbeaten out of education, have left their children in education. As Joe said, the stats show that something like 75% of those who are really in Christian homes leave the faith by the time they hit 23. Well, why is that? Because they have a, they're hearing two messages. And one's being taught by the really smart people with PhDs. And the other's just mom and dad. And the mom and dad are saying, you should do what I do. You should act in accordance with my example. As I did my parents. As they did their parents. And as their parents did. And as we all do, the image of Jesus Christ. That's who we follow. We model ourselves upon him they are hearing that they can be orphans and can decide for themselves what's right or wrong. They're also being told that um, they occupy this space between childhood and adulthood, which historically never existed, called adolescence. What is adolescence? Well, it's the era where you can act as an adult yet be treated as a child, where you can exhibit rebelliousness and get away with it where you don't actually have to hold responsibility and certainly nobody will make you responsible as long as you act well-adjusted. If you come out with a, the idea that you believe that uh, marriage is between a, ma- a man and a woman, then you're going to be punished, most certainly. But otherwise, you can say whatever you want as long as it agrees with what's up here. Say whatever you want, just make sure it's that. And Christian leaders are not without guilt in this. I think it's partly because this stuff is not really taught in seminaries, to be fair. It's not. The cultural stuff that has come up through the system is not being taught in the seminaries. 
But all the same, it's clear in Scripture that uh, parents are given the mandate to educate their children. It's in Deuteronomy 6. It's also in Ephesians uh, 6, verses 1 to 4. You know, fathers, bring your uh, children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, and that is not just a, an educational mandate. That's a cultural mandate. I'll come back to that at the end if I have time. But it is hard not to be alarmed when this sort of seismic activity is happening before our very eyes. And I, I teach at Tyndale in addition to being a pastor at Westminster Chapel and a fellow at the Ezra Institute. And I don't know, I sometimes forget. I have to remember where I am to make sure I'm not, I don't start teaching about Shakespeare or something. Um, but when you see this happening before your very eyes and when there are young people in your view and they've never known anything other than this shaking of all definitions and they've been told it's oppressive and they're phobic if they hold to what their parents thought. It's hard not to feel for them. And it's hard to speak to them and say, what am I supposed to do as a young person? I don't just say, well, what do you think is best? Because they need to be taught that. They need it to be modeled to them. It begins in the home. It will take place in the church. It also needs to take place in the school. Because if you think about it, how many hours a week do you spend in a school? Bad company corrupts good character. Um, and we can see that uh, being well-adjusted is just simply being happy with whatever our social conditioners tell us we ought to think. Now, the origin for all this, the fellow I want to talk about most uh, here this evening is a man by the name of Michel Foucault. Has anyone heard of Foucault? Some. I won't be surprised if it's not that many, but I can assure you that everybody who goes to university now is being uh, given a full dose of Michel Foucault. Uh, Foucault was, is, and is, the, and I would say, the most cited scholar in the humanities today, and he's the key figure in this transformation, the queering of human identity. Uh, he was a gay man. He was the first uh, public figure in France to die of AIDS. And he engaged in his scholarship, cultural studies, in a way that rejected uh, traditional historiography uh, and the fundamentally conservative activity of understanding the world and uh, trying to discern and understand the meaning of what happened in the past, including in its text. So what does the Bible mean on its terms? He changed that as, and s saying that we can't possibly know what, what was meant in the past. And at any rate, that's not what education is about. Education is not about recovering what is true and good and beautiful. It's not about cultural inheritance. It is a practice, according to Foucault, of seeking to engage with the tradition, tradition and to blow it up, to disrupt it. Wherever it makes its points, its emphasis, that's where Foucault wants to go and redefine um, identity. Uh, the past, he, he said, was like a hostile invader imposing itself on the present. And you've probably been accused of this yourselves. If you're a Christian, you're imposing your values on everyone else. And that is, that is unloving and that's unfair and that's unjust to impose your values. And Canadians, by and large, Christians have, have accepted that. Oh, well, I don't want to be unloving. I don't want to impose myself. After all, Jesus accepted everyone. He included everyone, didn't he? Well, no, he didn't. He didn't. He declared that 
sin was something that we could have no part in. He declared we had to follow him and go and sin no more. So the, the primary category for being a Christian was not uh, inclusion, but of repentance and regeneration. First you, must need, first, you have to repent. Then you can follow me. Well, uh, under Foucault, uh, this was no longer the cultural uh, mandate. The cultural mandate was to destroy the past and particularly the structures that enforced it and made it solid. And the family was the chief one of those. And his logic was simply this. If all reality is just a social construct, you know, we have a Christian social construct, and I hear Christians saying this. Well, you know, there's, there's Christian marriage, and then there's uh, the state marriage, the gay marriage. We don't agree with that. But really, that's their view, and they're welcome to it because there's, there's no such thing as we shouldn't impose our values on them. There's a man up in the Toronto area that uh, has proposed a, proposed a third way for marriage. One of the best-known pastors in the GTA, Broxy Cavey. Meeting house. See down here? Meeting house? It's got a third way for marriage, for Christians to propose, rather than the conservative or the liberal. Occupy a space in between. In the neutral zone. I think he was a, a Romulan. <coughs> well, for, for, for Foucault, the Christian mindset of the past was the preeminent source of injustice. He didn't just go after power and authority. He went specifically after Christian moral authority. And he wanted to free, Joe used this word, he wanted to free the past, uh, or rather the, the present from the past in the most radical way imaginable by uprooting all the uh, accumulated cultural and religious understandings that had come to form Western consciousness not just um, in, the ac- in the academic realm, but from our language. You can't say that. You can't call that uh, Mr. and Mrs. anymore. You can't use that. Let's talk about partners. That's not husband and wife. They're partners. We have to avoid husband and wife because that would suggest that marriage had gender complementarity as its root definition. We can't do that. Now, this... This feature of Foucault's scholarship we call political correctness. And it means that we can't say that something is what it actually is. And the the concept of gender is very important in this because gender is something we can't see. It it evades definition, as it says right here. Gender identity uh, will include the gender identity, uh, self-image, appearance, behavior, and expression, whether or not it was there at birth. It can be anything. Today I can be a woman. Tomorrow I can be two-spirited. Inquiring. I can come up with a new definition. They are being made by the day. And as long as Foucault's project was as absurd as it really is, because gender is fundamentally an absurd concept, and that's part of its power, by the way. If you can get a free people to accept that something that is categorically absurd is the, uh, is the language that they're going to use when talking to one another. You humiliate them. You humiliate them. And they're willing to accept almost anything you'll throw at them. If I'm not going to say that this is this and this is that, then I'm going to accept what anybody says on anything, even if my eyes see right before me that this is a man. He says he's a woman. Okay, I'll accept that. As soon as I accept that, what won't I accept? 
I'll be happy to accept that a, a, the unborn child is not a human being. Even though I can look in the womb and I can do the studies that will show that the DNA is uh, unique to every individual right from fertilization. That's a human being. It begins at conception. Science demonstrates it. But I will deny it, not because the science doesn't prove it, but rather because I don't want it to be the case and reality is now what I say it's going to be. And Christians won't hold to this and fight on it because they've accepted the big lie and they're humiliated and they don't think they can assert themselves publicly on this. So the human rights tribunals, which began in the 1980s when I was an undergrad, <coughs> are actually inseparable from Foucault's project. Their purpose there, and they stand to some extent outside the law, they have no actual real legal standing, uh, is there not to enforce politeness. It's not trying to teach us to be more polite. I thought Canadians were polite. I mean, isn't that, you know, Canadians, they're, they're uh, polite to a fault. Well, no, we've got to be politically correct. So it's got nothing to do with politeness. It has to do with saying what the people in positions of authority, intellectual authority, our cultural elite, say is true. And what society, and we being well-adjusted, will just tack along with that. In other words, it presents an antithetical agenda to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to go out into the world and declare to all nations that Jesus is, is Lord. And you're to discipline the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. And Jesus pointed to the law of Moses. I've come to fulfill the law of Moses. I affirm all of those things. I put them into force. Christians have understood that as their, their mandate as Christians to bring the Christian faith, not just in terms of salvation, but the Christian worldview into practice. Well, this is the anti-dominion or the anti-great commission. And we've accepted it in our day. And it happens primarily in the schools. And so we now live in our day uh, in, under a different legislation. We don't really live in under, under a different legislation, by the way. There is only one sovereign, and he still rules. But our country now doesn't listen to his rule. We have the legislation of a different kingdom. We have different laws. We have a new language in accordance with that. We have different practices that we have to regulate ourselves with. So even though Foucault's project is irrational, and even silly, if the public square the, and Christians disengage from the public square and refuse to fight on the very things that are a part and parcel of Christian identity and are a part and parcel of Christ's kingdom, because you can't have a king without a kingdom, right? What's a king without a kingdom? There is no such thing. His kingdom is here now. Not fully, but it, we're, we're to make manifest the kingdom right now, Right? Since when have Christians stopped doing this? Well, it's been a while. And it has happened under the watchword freedom. And who's opposed to freedom? Who wants to stand up and say, I, I oppose freedom? Well, in a 1983 interview, uh, Michel Foucault made it clear that he endorsed uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's radical views on self-creation. The New Agers had gone awry because they introduced the idea of authentic. I've got to be like Lady Gaga says, I'm born this way. I'm true to myself. Foucault says, no, 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 no. That's not really what we're doing. What we're really doing, there is no 
true self. There's no true self. What we are really after is self-creation. And we will really see self-creation precisely when we contradict what we see with our own eyes. You will know that something miraculous has happened when I declare I'm a woman, even though I don't look that way. It might not be a good miracle, but it's a miracle. Because it defies all reality. We will call that a miracle. Actually, that's their definition of a miracle, something that is absurd, makes no sense. It's proof of the, of the power of the new religion. And so Foucault makes this his project. We want to make ourselves like a work of art, created out of nothingness. And so coming out is a part of the parlance of queer writers. It's the celebration of the act of a new creation by the ar artist, a new birth that he celebrates for himself. Today's my birthday. Call me Janet. Um, I don't mean to ridicule, but this is, uh, this is actually what is being, uh, this is the language. It's the language of new creation, a new self, a new identity. It's not regeneration. It's creation out of nothing. And it's creation against what I can perceive with my eyes. It's absurd. And because this notion of gender is at odds with both biological sense, sex and the traditional family, it's a celebration that if it's going to really work, the, that queer theorists insist that everyone must celebrate. You cannot remain neutral on this. You must agree that this is the new human identity. There's a new priesthood, don't you know? It's called the Human Rights Co uh, Commission. There are new commissioners for it. They're called your principals and your teachers. They're bringing in a new form of humanity, and we're going to be socially adjusted to that. Let me give a... Something bigger than a school board. You're involved in a movement across North America and the world to say all means all. <laughs> Good enough. Awful. That took place in Upper Canada, uh, the furthest most, uh, for the easternmost region of Ontario. It's not just in the TDSB. That equity inclusion workshop was taking place not amongst urban dwellers. Those kids are coming from small towns and farmlands. That's what's going on in the public schools as we speak, all around Ontario. Um, queer theorists insist not that those who agree with it must celebrate, but that everyone must celebrate it. It's part of the public good. And they define the public good. Society does. And it's their mandate to make it so. So Peter Sandlin notes um, that queer theorists seek for a freedom from the limitations of sex itself. It's in the office space as well, by the way. Only when humanity understands itself as construed not by biological realities, but malleable sociological relations, will homosexuality be able to be enjoyed without heterosexual oppression. The assumptions latent in a presupposed biological bias towards heterosexuality must be queered sufficiently that they may be dis discarded. In other words, for this freedom to be truly free, everyone must worship it. Everyone must bow the knee to gender as opposed to sex and to all manner of sexual promiscuity. You only have to, 
It's, it's in the public schools right now. It is coming to the private schools. It is coming to your homes. The model of the ideal human being is the orphan. That's where it's going. The orphan that, um, it's just been released a study that, uh, and actually this is not a, a new study, this is uh, Kinsey, that children from three to six are at their fullest sexual maturation. That's being taught. You've just seen the child porn uh, rings being caught, uh, caught in the hundreds centered in Toronto. Where did this come about? Well, <coughs> there's a compulsory form of ambiguity here. You, can, you, you can't be this or that. You must be either or. Or both and if you want. Uh, and because those who promote Foucault's agenda deny that the world is God's creation, they also deny that there is a predestined meaning or a foreordained pattern in the universe or in human nature. My purpose as a human being is something that I will determine for myself. It's fundamental, fundamentally anarchic. It's, th it's the view of many pagan religions. Pagan religions uh, historically practice sexual rites precisely to placate the gods of nature. That's why you do it. New Year's, harvest, it's to interact with the natural world. It's, it's fundamentally chaotic. There's no order or morality. We're returning to this. Pederasty, bestiality. I think Christians thought when they allowed same-sex marriage, that would stop everything. We'll go along with that. Well, there's no reason why it should stop there. Once you've broken the template, anything goes, right? And that's what we're seeing. Now, this has a further problem. Because it is now achieved, it's not just a fringe group, it has attained the, the status of truth in the academy. And the academy is historically very slow in changing its understandings of things. Very slow. And it's resistant to it. You can't, you can't get tenure now in many universities unless you agree with this. Which is precisely why there need to be Christian universities, why Christians need to pull themselves out of the public universities because you can't stop the rot. It's gone too far. Christians will be denied tenure. They'll be denied. They won't actually even be hired unless they uh, will not espouse their faith publicly. They'll keep it as a private matter. Well, what's a private religion other than a lack of belief that uh, our God is in fact Lord, which is what the earliest Christians said about Jesus Christ. He's Lord. Um, but the consequence of this that we can see on society is best seen by a comparison. In the Christian uh, understanding, the final judgment belongs to God. You know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And one day we will stand before our judge, everyone. The dead and the living will, will be raised again, will stand before our judge, and there will be a final judgment. Everything that was hidden will be revealed. Everything. What that means for Christians is that they do not insist that there needs to be vengeance in this life. So you killed my daughter, you raped Whatever. I mean, that you committed terrible atrocities against my family. If I don't think that there's an ultimate judge, why would I not go after the person that did this? Why wouldn't I? Of course I'm going to do that. In the law of God, there is the lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's a limitation on vengeance. There's a reciprocity as well. You take a life, a life is forfeit. 
It's all the way back in Genesis 9, actually. Um, but in that, there's a restraint on uh, judgment. But if you think that there is no such thing as God, and there's no such thing as final judgment, and if you think that society determines what truth and falsehood is, what justice and injustice is, you must bring about justice in this life. And it must be immediate. Because guilt coincides with any attempt to delay that progress. So it's not enough that I do nothing wrong. I have to be promoting this, otherwise I'm guilty. Because justice needs to be here and now. It has to be right now. And they say that this is gender injustice, gender apartheid, homo, gosh, what do they call it? Heteronormativity being imposed. They insist on this. Now, this explains the oppressive character of the new tolerance. It's oppressive. It cannot admit opposition. It doesn't even admit the legitimacy of an argument. Joe and I debate on the air. I don't know if anybody else is involved in the public media. You ought to be. Christian voices are needed in the public square. Um, But the, the position that I advance is not even admitted by my opponent because my opponent won't even recognize that the rules of reason apply in the debate. They don't. They get caught out in a logical fallacy. I mean, some people get it and they laugh, but the, those who are really hardcore regard this as just a sort of a rhetorical move appealing to power. A great problem. So Christian education is an absolute necessity in this context precisely because if you want to advance the public good and you can't do it in the public square, you have to create a public that will improve the public. This is precisely what the early Christians did. They started up schools, Christian schools. They not only started them, they excelled. They exceeded the others that the pagan school system in morality. By the time Constantine came into power and he made Christian, uh, the Roman Empire Christian, the reason he did this is because Christians were the only people who could be trusted. They on, the only ones concerned with the public good. And the reason that that happened was a long standing commitment to Christian education, not just in learning, but in acting, which Joe talked about earlier. What we have here uh, that is taught in universities right now is something called a wheel of oppression. Uh, I'm sorry I don't have it. It's in the issue of Jubilee Magazine where we talk about sex and gender. I have it in there. And in the wheel of oppression is uh, power, privilege, access, and resources. Those that are closest to the center of this are those that have the most uh, access to all of these things. So if you're white, male, um, wealthy, Canadian-born, able-bodied, and Protestant, you are a structural oppressor, according to this paradigm. You're right on the inner circle. You have access to privilege, power, um, access, and resources. Now, there's something true in this, of course. Um, being a part of a culture for a long period means that we have connections and so forth. Same in every society, quite frankly. Uh, But here it presents it as inherently oppressive. Never mind the fact that, let's say in the U.S., a president can be a black man. Uh, Or in Canada, that we can have a prime minister who is a woman. Or in the U.K., a prime minister who is a woman. That we can have a gay premier. Never mind those things. There is still a a structural oppression at the center which states that uh, 
we are guilty simply by being these things. So I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm already guilty by virtue of being these things. And their statement in accordance with this is that I need to be removed from that center and I need to be replaced that by those that stand at the outset, outside of this um, area. And let me read to you some of these. So Native American, intersex, note Reuters staff, 60,000, by the way, um, on welfare, foreign-born, with a mental disability, um, pansexual, and either Hindu, Muslim, or Buddhist. Those are the most structurally oppressed. Look at the religions. Hinduism is a caste system, which in its very nature is oppressive. But they're the oppressed, according to this. Islam, if you're a Muslim, you're oppressed. Well, Islam spreads by the sword. They're the most oppressive religion around the world. And as far as the Buddhists go, the same thing goes. They're culturally uniform and do not permit Christians to propagate their gospel. Only in, in Christian countries is something like pluralism permissible. And yet under this rubric, the sexual agenda, all of that is connected with the religious identity and, we're rega- and the aim is to replace Christianity with all of these things as an act of social justice. So when you hear social justice, that is what is being uh, referred to. According to this view, only only whites can be racist. Only heterosexuals can be ra- can be can have a, a sexual bias. Only the able-bodied can commit acts of prejudice against others. So if you're in a, if you're in a wheelchair, you can't be prejudiced in any way. Um, if you're a Muslim, you're already, the world is against you. And you get sympathy from the public square. And it's the public square's responsibility to promote that. So there's an Islam Awareness Month in the TDSB. A whole month dedicated to Islam. Uh, this wheel of oppression, by the way, was created after 9-11. It shows you how recent and powerful it is. And we will see that this is the uh, what we call identity politics, group politics being, uh, which is the naked cloak of prejudice uh, under the robe of justice, and it utterly subverts the common law tradition, which, as I said earlier, is that every individual has the same dignity before the law. Under the law, we're all equal. doesn't matter what your background is. We're individuals, though. Um, the social justice crowd will talk about the emancipation of first the blacks and then the women's and now the gays. What they neglect in this, this uh, wonderful history that they recount is that what was actually stated in that is that the, uh, the black man is a man. It's not that he was a, a member of the black race. He was a black man. That's a man. Women have equal dignity under the law because they're human beings. They bear God's image. They are part of man, male, female. So the equality movement that has come in the Christian community, and Christians have endorsed it, is because of the individual bearing God's image. The social justice movement is predicated on immorality and the transgression of all common human nature. In fact, it insists that we do so. So let me conclude with this. The social justice movement saws off the branch it stands on, though. No justice there. How, do we, how should we respond to this? Well, in Ephesians uh, 6, verses 3 and 4, it talks about bringing up children, and not, it's, 
usually rendered the fear and admonition of the Lord, it's actually in the Greek, the paideia and the nuthesia of the Lord. The paideia is the word for culture. Remember Joe's talk at the outset, he talked about culture being the expression of religious truth. In the paideia, the whole comprehensive religious assumptions about the world, everywhere lived out. And the nuthesia refers to the mind, the nous, the nous. Renewing your minds. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. You may not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your minds. Christ's mind. Christ's culture. That's what needs to be restored. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.